Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. Yes, we are. And we're back again for another installment of 27 Speaks. So hope everybody had a good Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Everybody's silent on that one. <laughs> it rained all weekend. So we're going to talk about something that's a big issue here on the East End of Long Island, which is water quality. It's been a recurring issue, lots of changes. And as more and more people are moving out here and more and more houses are being built, it seems like the water quality issues have only compounded. So we have somebody with us today who can address that very, very well. But first, we're going to do our introductions. And manning the controls, as usual, is Bill Sutton. Hi, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. We also have Brendan J. O'Reilly with us. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Hey, Annette. I am Brendan. I'm the features editor. And we have Joe Shaw with us once again. Hiya, Joe. How you doing? Hey, Annette. I'm good. It's Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And joining us today is Chris Gobler. And um, Chris is the, I'm going to let you say this, Chris, because I always get this wrong. You're a professor at Stony Brook, but do you want to, do you want to add all of the monikers that go in front of that? Um, yeah, well, I'm a professor in the School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. Um, I'm also director of the New York State Center for Clean Water Technology. I feel like Chris is sort of the expert on water on the East End. I agree. I think that's fair, Chris. I think all sides sort of look to you as the final word on this stuff. You've been out here for a long time studying this. How long, when did your work in water quality on the East End really start? Uh, 1992. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that traces back to my days as a graduate student. So I did both my master's and PhD actually at Stony Brook. Studies there were actually uh, driving out from Stony Brook to the East End to start sampling water quality there that was involved with uh, brown tides all the way back then. So you've seen a lot of changes in the water quality here. I wonder if you could just give a quick overview of how, how the water quality has changed out here. Sure. I mean, you know, the big thing is, like I said, when I started, it was with brown tide and that was sort of, that was an era in the 1990s where brown tide was brand new. It first occurred in 1985 and it was shocking in that this whole phenomenon of, uh, quote, harmful algal blooms wasn't even a name phenomenon yet. It was, you know, it was just, okay, there's this weird thing called brown tide, but you know, even back then, the effects were so obvious, it led to the complete collapse of the Peconic Bay scallop fishery. At the time, that was the biggest scallop fishery on the east coast of the U.S., and it's now at 1% of those former landings. The changes since then is that, you know, while that was, you know, assumed at that point, you know, oh, brown tie, that's, that's, that's sort of new. What we've, what's happened since then is we've had an onslaught of all these different types of harmful algal blooms in both marine and freshwater. So brown tide, red tide, rust tide, mahogany tide, blue green algae in freshwater. Um, you know, and then along with that, we've had, uh, you know, the scallop fishery start to recover and then collapse again. Uh, and we've seen things like seagrasses retreat um, and I guess the other thing I'll say that, you know, if we're ta- taking that almost 30 year perspective, the other thing overlaying on all this is the progressive climate change that's been happening. And it's, you know, climate change is real and it's very um, 
you know, you can document it with numbers very clearly on the east end. Uh, our water temperatures have uh, progressively risen uh, at a rate significantly higher than the global average. So, you know, we're, we're not the worst place in the world for climate change, but we definitely are uh, way ahead of the curve, I'd say. Why is that? Why, why is it higher here? Yeah, well, you know, let me give, a, let me contextualize that when I say we're ahead of the curve. So this is an important aspect of climate change. So first of all, when I, I, I'm using that word, so let me be clear on the data. I'm talking about water temperatures, first of all. And let me also say that, you know, that, that warming that I'm talking about has not been uniform uh, with regards to seasonality. So that is that we know our, our spring and winter temperatures are not really that different than they have been historically. But our summer water temperatures, those are the ones that have risen uh, by you know, more than two degrees centigrade and the same thing for the fall. And the summer for me is the most troubling because uh, that is when we're actually already at our peak water temperatures. So what that means is our bays, harbors, and estuaries, and coastal waters are hitting temperatures they really haven't seen before or haven't seen for maybe you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Uh, and so the, and the reasons behind that, well, there's, it's, it's one, it's primarily just, you know, the process of what we call global warming. So we know also in parallel, the levels of CO2, uh, which is the primary greenhouse gas has hit a level, uh, 420 parts per million that we've never seen in at least in the last, uh, maybe 20 million years. And so that's the biggest aspect of it. So I was curious when the round tide first surfaced here in the mid eighties, was this the, what, you know, has this, is this something that had been seen elsewhere in the world or in the United States, or was this sort of a novel event for us? Yeah. And so that one in particular, the brown tide was a novel event in that it hadn't been seen anywhere in the U S or in the world, actually. Um, now that's partly because I think the organism that causes these brown tides is so very small that it probably had been lurking in the background for a while and it just came to prominence with the right environmental conditions in that particular year. And now is brown tide now pretty pervasive in lots of parts of the country? Um, it's in the US, it's a phenomenon that's really just in the Northeast down through the mid-Atlantic. There's a sister species that likes warmer temperatures that shows up in Florida and Texas. Um, but in addition, since it was first identified here, it's also made some global spread. So it's been seen in China and actually much bigger, uh, wider spread blooms there and also in, uh, in Africa. And the different types of algae, Chris, have a different kind of negative impact on the waters, right? Uh, brown tide was damaging in one way, but that, that doesn't compare to things like the red tide and the blue-green tide, which, which are just much, much more damaging in different ways. Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, of all the what we call harmful algal blooms, you can split them into two buckets. And the one would be the types that are damaging to marine, marine life. Um, and that would be like the brown tide. You could also put the mahogany and rust tide in there. But yeah, Joe, you're exactly right in coupling the blue-green algae with the red tide. Those are algae that make biotoxins, so compounds that actually have a human health threat, and those can be either neurotoxins or gastrointestinal toxins. Uh, and and you know, and, and for that reason, we would worry 
uh, a lot more about those. Is this a progression? Did it start with brown tide and then move to rust tide and then to is is this like a going further down the 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 path? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I have a slide in my standard slide deck that I show, and it's a time course that essentially shows that you know there was way back in the fifties there was this green algae that was one of the uh, on the south shore that had led to some. Uh, when we had duck farms there, you may, you may recall the Long Island duck, and the, hence the, uh, the, the team, the, the baseball team there, the Long Island ducks. So the duck farming was pervasive. Uh, and with all the waste from the duck farms, there were these green tides that showed up in the 1950s. Um, there were actually as, not as many inlets then. Those inlets on the South Shore, like the Merchants Bay Inlet and the Shinnecock Inlet, opened up, and that actually flushed the water out. Those went away. And we had this. Um, this uh, graceful period of from the mid 50s to 1985, no harmful algal blooms, the most robust scallop fishery, the most robust hard clam fishery in the, in the country. And then, yeah, the timeline starts with brown tide in 1985. And then in this century, yeah, in order, uh, two different types of red, uh, red tide, rust tide, the mahogany tide, the blue green algae, um, sort of all showing up one after the other between I'd say 2003 and 2010 or so. All of them occur somewhere almost every year. And we can pretty much attribute this to the increased growth in, in chemicals from lawns and septic systems entering the waterways. Is that pretty accurate? Um, it, actually, we, yeah, well, I can refine that statement even further, right? So when it first started happening, it would have been you, what you said would have been correct, but we can refine that even further now in that there's been about a half a dozen studies that have looked very carefully uh, at what are called sub-watersheds. So for like each given water body, doing the study and answering the question, what is the biggest source of nitrogen going from the land into the water? And in most cases, it's actually the on-site septic systems. Um, you know, that almost always outweighs the fertilizers with the exception of areas with very intensive agriculture. Uh, and we do have those areas, for example, on the South Fork uh, and in the North Fork, but by even in, in some of those areas, believe it or not, it's actually the septic systems also. So uh, that the septic systems lead the way and then fertilizer is usually second. I'm curious, what comes after blue-green algae? Like, hmm. is, is there any way to predict, like is there something worse that, that we may see coming next or is there no way of knowing? Yeah, I mean, I hopefully, hopefully there's nothing worse coming. Um, but you know, the one thing with I, I mentioned climate change before, and that is, you know, the, the 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 way that that is acting is essentially it's allowing species that typically are seen at lower latitudes to suddenly make their home at a higher latitude where we are, right? Because these organisms are just sort of following what we call their thermal optimum. Um, and so for rust tide, for example, we've shown very clearly that, you know, in the 20th century, there was almost no window for the rust tide to form a bloom, for example, on our, in our waters. We just didn't get warm enough. But now the bloom window is open for like two months. Um, and so there are some lower latitude species. You may have ever heard of the red tide that's in Florida uh, that is really, really damaging. Um, and it's, it's only been seen as far north as Delaware. Um, but, you know, 
through the 20th century, it was never seen outside of Florida, then it was North Carolina, then in Delaware. So, um, you know, it, if we get warm enough, uh, it, it could wash into our waters. And stuff. I'm curious, what are the most problematic water bodies on the South Fork that you think we really need to be extra concerned about? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you can break that up. If you look at the South Shore um, and you know where the Shinnecock Inlet is and then the Mariches Inlet is, if you move west from the Shinnecock Inlet and you move east from the Mariches Inlet, you'd meet in what's called Quantuck Bay, which is like in the Quag West Hampton Beach area. And because the ocean flushing is so far from that bay, and because the water has to exchange through these little canals to get in and out of that, you know, that's sort of been historically uh, the epicenter for a lot of these events. Where, you know, we've seen really massive brown tides that last for months. Uh, that's where they've been most intense. Um, because in all of these cases, the important thing to point out is that the, it's, it's the heavy nitrogen loading but when you have stagnant water like that, that just gives that nitrogen more time to exact its effect on the ecosystem. So it, the nitrogen goes in and it's not getting flushed out. So it's getting taken up and it's, it's translating into all these problematic uh, outcomes. And that stagnant water also heats up more and faster. So you get that, it's that low flushing, high temperature, high nitrogen combo. Um, and then, you know, we certainly have plenty of, uh, both enclosed and semi-enclosed water bodies on the South Shore that have had problems historically. Uh, lakes and ponds, of course, Lake Aguam has been uh, problematic, but you know, there's a, um, at one point I had the moniker, the Dirty Dozen, uh, because there was about a dozen fresh water bodies uh, on the South Fork that, uh, in just a few miles, I think over a less than 10 mile stretch that had blue-green algae blooms or, you know, tends to get them almost every year. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of other places to call out as well. Yeah. This is all sort of dark and negative, but um, Chris, you and I just saw each other a week ago. Um, and by the way, it was nice to see you in person. It was nice to see anybody in person and not on a Zoom screen for a change. Yeah. Where were you? Do you want to see what that event was? That was at the Southampton Arts Center and it was an event uh, sponsored by the Arts Center and the Village. Uh, it was a conversation about environmental policy. And at that, uh, Chris, you, you talked about the fact that there's actually some positive things to talk about um, for a change. We're, you know, things have been getting worse and worse and worse for uh, 20 years, but there are some small green sprouts showing uh, where, where we're starting to see some success. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And that, I mean, that's definitely the case. You know, I think, you know, thankfully, we, we're actually in, a, in my mind, a very hopeful era right now because, you know, the science is clear and, you know, I would almost call airtight. Um, and in the, in, we've had therefore advocates pointing this out for years. Uh, and now in the last five years, I'd say we've got uh, elected officials now embracing that reality and making positive uh, legislative changes to address those realities. So I'll start with uh, the septic situation. We've already talked about that's the biggest source of nitrogen. 
And um, in Suffolk County, everybody's septic system is regulated by the Suffolk County Department of Health Services. I use the term for Suffolk County, uh, worst to first. And that is to say five years ago, one could argue that Suffolk County had the worst policy for on-site septic systems in that everyone just simply had a very deep hole in the ground. The wastewater was injected into that hole or not injected, but fell into that hole and then fl flowed into our groundwater, which is our one is our drinking water. And two, whatever we don't use for drinking water discharges into surface waters and was leading to all these problems. But in the last five years, Suffolk County enacted what's known as Article 19, which permitted the use of uh, advanced and innovative alternative septic systems that remove more nitrogen. Um, and it's created probably not even probably the most um, incentivized program for installing these systems and enacted the sub watersheds plan, which is literally a 40 year plan for converting Suffolk County from having 380,000 systems that go directly to ground uh, to converting the very large majority of those over 220 uh, into these advanced alternative systems uh, that no longer will pollute our groundwater um, and, and have a positive change. And so it's an incredible, uh, incredibly forward-looking plan. Um, and, you know, and I give a lot of credit to, I mean, I'll just say County Executive Steve Pallone, because this is a plan that goes 30 years and, you know, he'll be long gone by then. Um, but it's it's the exact plan we need, and it's done in a prioritized way. So they're 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 uh, prioritizing the systems mainly on the South Shore, frankly, uh, that are in the most in need of upgrades. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Chris, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could perhaps debunk something or tell us if there is any truth to it, but I'm sure you're familiar that there's a group of people out there that believe that removing all this nitrogen from the water is having an opposite effect. And they refer to the Southwest sewer district. And they say, after that went in, we took all these people off of cesspools and septic systems and put them onto sewage treatment that the clam population continued to decline and just got worse. Or they're saying it created more problems than it solved. Uh, they also believe that there's issues where households are using water and then it goes to a sewage treatment plant and it gets discharged and that water is not going right back into their own backyards to be recharged and go into the ground there. And perhaps that we're, you know, removing water from our estuary that we want that fresh water in our estuary. Uh, so I'm sure you've heard from these people before and, and what is the counter argument? Sure. Well, you know, it's always, I, I always actually welcome uh, challenges and alternative hypotheses, because if you can't refute them, then your science is no good. So uh, on the Southwest Sewer District front, um, you know, the collapse of the clams has been clearly shown to be due to overharvesting in the 1980s. So uh, that was best demonstrated by Professor uh, John Kreuter from Rutgers University. 
Um, and it's pretty widely accepted. And, and I think anybody who lived on, in, on Great South Bay or did shellfish in Great South Bay would affirm this and that, you know, I've seen the pictures where literally the boats are end to end all across the bay. When you have that many people harvesting clams all at once, you know, that's, that's the story of fisheries. They then collapse. Uh, the interesting thing, though, about the Southwest Sewer District um, is that once before the Southwest Sewer District was created, you know, all that wastewater was going directly into Great South Bay. As soon as that, not as soon as, but after that, that wastewater was sent out to the ocean, what happened in the area where that wastewater had been going in is that there was the regrowth of thousands of acres of seagrass, eelgrass, which is a critical habitat for uh, marine species. And frankly, in the last, I, you know, I, I'd have to, I'd venture to say in the last 40 years, it's the only place in all of New York State where we've had seagrass recover and regrow. And so that is, that's really what the consequence was there, that you you were able to take a place that was um, being inundated with sewage and not have um, habitable for seagrass and converted into a place that was flourishing for seagrass. Um, and with regards to, you know, the sending of water offshore, um, you know, I will say that in, in thankful news for most of Suffolk County, we have an excess of water. Um, and so that is, you know, in Nassau County, they really need to worry about that. And actually in Nassau County, they do send a fair bit of water uh, offshore. Uh, but these innovative and alternative systems, that's just taking the water and sending it back to ground. Um, and, you know, I actually just yesterday spoke with uh, Peter Scully, Deputy County Executive uh, for Suffolk County. And, you know, he just affirmed that that sewering is just really not the way to go. It's just cost. And unless you're in a downtown area, uh, and so you can think like Southampton Village, uh, that is the only place where you might consider that. And it's partly because you know, the whole place is pavement. There's nowhere to go and put these systems in. So you're gonna have to dig up the pavement anyway. Um, but cost-wise on a per home basis, this is gonna be done via the on-site systems. And again, that was uh, uh, confirmed to me just yesterday and should mention Peter Scully is also known as the czar of water quality for Suffolk County uh, because it's, it's more than $100,000 um, per home to hook them up to a sewer district. And that's after you invest $100 million to build a sewage treatment plant. Um, so this is, um, and, and again, uh, that, and what that results in is the water someone uses in their home does go to ground. And so it allays those fears of water being sent. To Brendan's point, I think I, Carl Grossman wrote about this recently in his column about rewatering. And he talked about Nassau County and, uh, this is interesting to me because I think if, if I can just sort of stress what you're saying is if Suffolk County moves towards, yeah, there'll be some sewers in, in the villages where it makes more sense, but the overwhelming number of properties would get the, the IA systems, which, which are more advanced. Those are actually putting the water back into the groundwater the way you want to do it, but with less nitrogen and, and that will, that's a better strategy for protecting our, our water supply in the long run, rather than sewering the entire region and throwing the, the treated water out into the ocean somewhere, which is just gonna sort of steadily drain the aquifer. This is actually a better way to do it and cheaper. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, one point I want to also emphasize on these systems. So, you know, I've emphasized they they uh, remove nitrogen, but I want to say, you know, as the director of the New York State Center for Clean Water Technology at Stony Brook University, we've created uh, an IA system called nitrogen removing biofilters. Um, they're all natural. They're made literally with just sand and wood chips. So it's a drain field that underneath is a layer of sand, layer of wood chips. Um, they remove more nitrogen than the commercially available systems, but probably even more importantly, they also remove, you know, dozens and dozens of what we call organic contaminants. So personal care products, pharmaceuticals, drugs, uh, a carcinogen known as 1,4-dioxane that's found in household products. Um, all these things that not only do we not want getting into our surface waters, but more importantly, these are things we do not want to be drinking. Um, and, you know, whether you have a private well, or you get your water from Suffolk County Water Authority, even the Suffolk County Water Authority wells, wellheads, they only are no more usually than a mile or two from each individual home. So, you know, no one should think, oh, I have county water and it's coming from, you know, upstate New York. No, your drinking water, no matter where you are, comes from a mile, on average, probably a mile or less um, where you live. And therefore we need these systems Yes, to remove nitrogen, but also to remove other contaminants uh, so we can assure that we're having clean and healthy water for our populations going forward. Did, did you install one of those systems over on Shelter Island? I kind of remember something like that at Sylvester Manor, maybe? Yes, and the system the, the system there is actually a hybrid system. It partly had the technology of the NRB because it had wood chips, but it also was what we call a, uh, a circulating gravel wetland. Uh, IA system. And so, you know, in that, in that case, you can have what's, you know, beautiful vegetation uh, with plants for, for pollinators uh, above it, and then underneath it, these layers that are uh, doing all the work of making the water clean. So is that kind of system for home use, or is that on a, like, why would you, you know, are you able to choose that system over these IA systems? I'm just wondering, like, do those have a different application that doesn't make sense in a home setting? No, they, so they, we're, at the Center for Clean Water Technology, we're actually working to make those available for homeowners as well. And so there's a process in the county. They call the, uh, you have to go through essentially three stages, an experimental stage, a piloting stage, and then provisional approval in which anybody can install it. And so we've gotten both the, the our NRB systems, which are just the sand and wood chip layers, and the wetland systems into the piloting stage. Uh, and so we're hope within... By next summer, we expect the NRBs to be provisionally approved. Uh, we have a little bit more to go on the wetlands front, um, but that's another system that we hope to get that anybody can install in their home. And is it cheaper and easier, do you think, than, than some of the other systems? They're definitely easier. You know, the one thing our, we call our systems, in, according to the state of Florida, the Florida Department of Health, our systems are passive. They only run on a single pump. Uh, and so it's a lot less energy intensive than some of these other systems um, and less, less to break. Um, on the, the cost wise, we're, we're actually right now, because we're building them just one at a time and most of the costs are labor and construction, we're slightly above what the other systems cost. However, uh, we're building them again, one at a time. We have to hire a contractor and the contractors necessarily know about the system. What we, we believe this will be a viable, putting in our NRBs will be a viable uh, business for someone because once they're provisionally approved, frankly, 
there's literally, and when I say literally, there are billions of dollars to be made installing these systems because there's going to be 200,000 installed and they're all, you know, more than $10,000, $20,000. And so, uh, you know, and, and, and so when it's someone's business and they're not doing it as a one off, we're confident that these systems that we've, these simple systems we've come up with uh, will be uh, price competitive and uh, as cheap or cheaper than commercially available systems. So, Chris, let's talk kelp. Okay, yeah. You had an announcement just recently. What, tell us about the role kelp is, could potentially play in, in all of this, in the, in the ecosystem and trying to get it back on track. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I'll, I'll start that by actually uh, closing the book on the septic systems in, in that, you know, so Suffolk County has this great plan, you know, replacing 220,000 septic systems. Uh, but the, the caveat there is that that plan goes until the year 2050. And groundwater travel times in some places can be decadal, with the upshot being that, you know, just being honest, <laughs> we may be all long gone by the time we see the effects there. And, but that's fine. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're doing work for future generations. But what it also means is we need parallel efforts, I call it what I call in the water remediation to deal with the water quality today. And so kelp is a seaweed uh, and like all seaweeds, when they grow, they photosynthesize, which means that they're putting more oxygen into the water. They're pulling carbon dioxide out of the water and they're pulling nitrogen out of the water. Um, and so a few years ago uh, with a collaboration from a group called Green Wave in Connecticut, we piloted the very first installations of kelp on oyster farms uh, on Long Island. There's about three dozen oyster farms. Those oyster farmers are very busy in the summer. In the winter, however, there's a lot less for them to do. Turns out kelp has a winter growing season. And so it's the exact opposite of the oysters. We, uh, we spawn the kelp to make kelp lines in say November. Uh, those get installed in December. They grow through the winter. And actually, we just finished harvesting them, uh, harvesting them this month. And uh, so in the last three years, we've done this on 10 oyster farms across Long Island. Uh, kelp is grown at all the locations, you know, different amounts in different locations. But, um, you know, we now harvested our this past week, our 10,000th pound of kelp. That's a lot of material that otherwise would be just going back into the water. We're pulling it out. Um, and that's represented hundreds of pounds of nitrogen. Uh, and based on the numbers we're seeing, if that kelp is then put onto an oyster farm and you had a one acre size oyster farm, which is not unreasonable in just a few months. So in the growing season from January to May, that oyster farm could, a farmer could pull out 70,000 pounds of kelp. Uh, and that's the equivalent of 20 IA systems. So, uh, and again, when I say that, I always want to emphasize, I'm not saying do it instead of, but do this while we're addressing the on the water. And, and the point is the kelp then can be used. Uh, what, how is kelp used? I mean, it, this is a this is a, a, a product that that you're that they're also creating and they can make money from. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So we don't want to just do it to do it. And so, yeah, one, uh, there's there's a there, there are people building 
towards making kelp a food product. So to be served actually in high-end restaurants as dishes. And I've eaten kelp before. I've eaten it raw, I've eaten it blanched. And uh, you know, it's, it's actually a pretty flexible food item. And of course, as you just like um, you know, your green vegetables would be, kelp is very nutritious. Um, and then beyond what's used for a food product, you know, seaweeds are used across the world as food additives, as other products. And then some exciting things that we've been doing in the past five years is turning it actually into fertilizer. Because of the kelp, you know, the, the, what they call the baby kelp leaves or blades are, are, are what you'd want to use for food. Uh, but there's other parts that are sort of rough and tough and uh, would never be used for food, but are still rich in nutrients. And so we've come up with a few ways to turn that material into uh, a dried fertilizer that you could use and put down as uh, compost or mix into the soil and also a liquid one that could be um, you know, poured onto plants and such. And we've been able to show that the, the, nu the nutrient contents of what we've been able to make look no different than miracle Grow, and the outcomes in some cases are the equivalent of miracle Grow. So, so you thought you were a sea guy and now you're a farmer. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> well, I, I, should, I should mention that um, the, uh, I'm very fortunate to be working with a gentleman named Michael Dole, um, who's got 30 years of experience in the marine field. We actually went to graduate school together in 1992. Uh, he was an oyster farmer for 10 years, and he's been leading the kelp work in my lab uh, for the last five years. And um, so he's been an oyster farmer. And so he knows exactly, one, he's been able to make these great connections. And two, he's been able to see how this is, would be a great value added to oyster farmers um, and, and then also allow them to have an additional product. Chris, on the topic of fertilizer, kelp meal being already a popular organic fertilizer, and I think this prospect that we could be farming it and selling it right here on Long Island uh, is pretty amazing. Like I'm looking at a four pound bag of kelp meal, $24 on Amazon right now. Yeah. So this is commercially viable. It's probably not as much as 24 at a nursery. I think it's actually more reasonable when you buy it at the nursery instead of um, adding on those shipping costs. But the other end of fertilizer is what people are putting down on their lawns and what the farms are putting down, which you say is not the biggest contributor. Septic is the biggest contributor. Old cesspools are the biggest contributor. But just refraining from putting down fertilizer seems so much easier than putting in a $30,000 IA system. I went to one event which was actually targeted for landscaping companies about how they could be more green, more organic, less impactful on the environment while saving themselves money. And they were talking to them about using less fertilizer and switching to organic fertilizers. And as you know, the reason organic fertilizers are preferable is because they are non-water soluble Whereas miracle grow, as soon as it rains, all that runoff goes right into the bays and the ponds and the lakes, right? Right. So it's easy for me to just not put down fertilizer. Uh, these people that must have emerald green lawns, it's not as easy for them to refrain from putting down fertilizer. How do you feel about the villages saying, if you live this close to the pond, you can never put down nitrogen fertilizer again? Or, you know, and what's that cutoff? Is it 200 feet? Is it a mile? And should that really be done by legislation? Because it's been suggested to people voluntarily and it doesn't seem like there's been much of a change in behavior. Yeah, well, I mean, I would just say that, you know, there are all sorts of restrictions that the DEC has with regards to wetlands, right? So you can't necessarily 
you know, within 200 feet of the shore, you can't build, right? And that's because they know how sensitive wetlands are. Um, and so I do think, you know, having a restricting fertilizer or fertilizing uh, very near shore to me does make sense. Uh, you know, I, I haven't fertilized my lawn in a long time, but I remember when I had in the past, you've got one of those spray, you know, the, you push the thing and it shoots everywhere and it's, it's, it's going to get into the water. Um, uh, and then, you know, the thing is on the types of fertilizer used that, you know, you're, you're totally on the mark, Brendan, in that, you know, these synthetic fertilizers uh, are meant to get in there very, very quickly. And if they're not applied judiciously, which, you know, in most cases they probably aren't, uh, there's going to be excess that does get through and get into the water. So, so yeah, organic fertilizers that are, uh, you know, not water soluble and, and things like kelp potentially or seaweeds that uh, may have a lasting effect, uh, a more lasting effect and, and help condition the soils, um, you know, could be the right solution. You know, Chris, something that, that, that we talked about on at the panel at this, the art Center that I just find fascinating is so many of these efforts, um, the kelp farming that you're talking talking about now, but really the shellfish industry in general are unique in that these are industries that actually are going to leave the bays cleaner than they found it while making money for the people who are doing the these industries right i mean this is this is a win 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 situation basically if we can get uh things like the the, the kelp farming and and if we can see a rebound in the shellfishing industry uh and more shellfish in the bays we're going to see benefits to these industries getting getting stronger that doesn't happen with most with most industries. Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. And that's why we call this, you know, when we talk about shellfish with seaweeds, that's why, you know, Mike Dole and I use the term sustainable and regenerative aquaculture, right? Uh, there is some aquaculture, for example, when people farm fish, I'm sure you've heard this, can actually be really polluting, right? You have salmon farm and they're feeding them all sorts of meal and that pollutes the water and makes the water underneath it a lot dirtier and such. Whereas here, just like you said, Joe, I mean, we're, you're, you're saying, you know, the seaweeds as they grow are extracting the nitrogen phosphorus out of the water. The shellfish as they grow, you know, are extracting the nitrogen phosphorus out of the water. And so, yeah, and so these, and they could, as you also mentioned, be potentially repopulating the bays because as they, when the shellfish reproduce, which they do every year, um, they could make, you know, they, they, they could, they'll be making baby shellfish that will naturally repopulate the wild population. Um, and so, you know, it, and that also reminds you of something else that I spoke about at the press conference uh, that we're starting up and that's uh, something called a nitrogen credit program. Uh, and so that is the idea that, you know, for this year, what we announced uh, at the press conference was that we will be providing for every pound of nitrogen the kelp farmers, the oyster farms who, who had the kelp uh, grew for every pound of nitrogen they, they, in that kelp, we're going to be giving them $100. Uh, and so I, I don't know how much we're giving out yet because we have to actually do the analysis, uh, but it's, it's, it's recognizing the service they're providing to society by removing that nitrogen. And, and incentivizing it. Exactly. And it's a program we want to expand. So this, this is our very first off. And I should mention uh, Peconic Baykeeper Organization is partnering with us to help us uh, with that program for this year. But 
what we another thing that we have in our on our radar is to try to get to the point where we can, uh, you know, in, in Europe, if you're in industry and you produce too much carbon dioxide, you have to buy carbon credits. You have to offset your carbon pollution. And so if you're a company and you make produce a lot of CO2, you have to buy a bunch of trees. And so what we'd like to do the same thing when it comes to nitrogen. Uh, so a company, if they now if it would be voluntary, but you know I'm sure there are some green companies that would want to be nitrogen neutral, or even some homeowners who want to be nitrogen neutral. Uh, and so we can see a path whereby, if they are interested in that, they can invest in the farming of seaweeds, and that so that all the nitrogen they produce could be offset by the nitrogen removed by seaweeds within uh, the aquatic environment. Are, are you optimistic, Chris? I guess you have to be. To do what you do, you have to be optimistic. Yeah, yeah, you have to be optimistic. And in, and and I am because, like I said, there's so many good things going on. And not only, I, I'll also say I'm optimistic and I'm, you know, I'm motivated also because, you know, when I think about all these things we're doing, you know, and again, I'll bring up the climate change uh, phrase again. You know, when I see everything that's going on and I see climate change going on, the climate change part to me is the is the real call to action right and so the you know as much as we want to be carbon neutral on the east end and, and i think we can be you know the two i as soon as i hear carbon neutral in the united states my brain instantly says two words china india right and those are countries that are just producing more, you know much much more when it comes to fossil fuel combustion and much more CO2 uh, than this country is. And so we know therefore there will be climate change happening and accelerating. And so the, and what that for me emphasizes that we must, we must take care of the things that we can address uh, and take the actions we can address. And the, you know, the main tool in the toolbox is nitrogen. And again, doing it on land, septics, doing it in the sea with seaweeds and shellfish. The final thing that we didn't talk about, I'll just mention very quickly, and this uh, actually circles back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, you know, if if it wasn't enough of all the amazing things that kelp do, um, what we found is that they have incredible. Um, they have they secrete compounds to make sure that they don't get fouled, and so that's you know when we grow them out in the lines. On the rope, you'll see all sorts of things growing on them, but the kelp is just totally clean and clear. Turns out the compounds that they secrete to protect themselves also kill off some of these harmful algal blooms. So we just published a study. Um, you know, it's it, uh, as of this recording, it hasn't quite come out, but it may be by the time people hear this recording, it's going to be in the International Peer Review Journal Harmful Algae that kelp can kill the most toxic of the harmful algal blooms, the red tides, so it kills the cells uh, and it protects the shellfish from accumulating the toxins. And um, so that was, you know, kind of somewhat of a surprise, particularly the, the potency with which regards to uh, how strong it is. And it only further solidifies or justifies this idea of having the seaweeds with the shellfish and that you know the the seaweeds can create this protective halo effect around the shellfish to protect them from accumulating those toxins. Nat nature is so cool. <laughs> yeah, especially when you pay attention to it and let it do its thing. Don't try to change it.
Can you talk just real quickly about um, Lake Agawam and the successes that we're seeing up there with the um, hydrogen peroxide and, and the skimmers? Sure, sure. So just real quick, I'll just say, that, you know, Lake Agawam has been for nearly 20 years, one of the most toxic uh, lakes and ponds uh, in New York State has recurring harmful algal blooms caused by an uh, organism known as microcystis, makes a toxin known as microcystin. Um, in 2019 and 2020, uh, Southampton Village, Southampton Town, and the New York State DEC got together with the Lake Agawam Conservancy to draft a DEC-based harmful algal bloom action plan for Lake Agawam. And that action plan had essentially two important components, a short-term component, to protect public health because of the very serious threat and how intense the blooms are there. Uh, and then a longer term component to address the root causes uh, to assure that there's a long term sustainable solution. So the long term is addressing the septic systems, potentially sewering, and then also importantly, probably dredging the lake. So getting the sediments in that lake out, those sediments have been accumulating for literally hundreds of years are now a very rich source of nitrogen and phosphorus. But Bill, to your question, there's also short-term action uh, because again, we don't want people exposed to these toxins. We know that there's been dogs that have either gotten sick or died due to exposure to these toxins. So this year we've piloted two technologies uh, in Lake Agawam, and this is in collaboration with the DEC. One, it was known as, or is, uh, ultrasonic devices, so devices that release, um, uh, release sonic waves that are shown to not be harmful to aquatic life, but are supposed to disrupt these uh, blue-green algae and cause them just to fall to the bottom of the lake. And as you also referenced, uh, the use of hydrogen peroxide. I'll just say that, you know, on the front of hydrogen peroxide, you know, the idea of treating a problem caused by chemicals with chemicals is something that's made me recoil my entire career. Uh, however, the hydrogen peroxide is, a, uh, is quite different than everything else in that when used at the right concentrations, and it's an old saying that goes back to the middle of the, uh, well, to the middle ages, a scientist, uh, I think in the year 1300 from mm, somewhere in Europe who said the term, the dose makes the poison. Right. And so, you know, if you poured a lot of hydrogen peroxide into Lake Agawam, you'd kill everything. But as it turns out, these blue green algae are, are also called cyanobacteria, are the first evolved photosynthetic organisms on planet Earth. They evolved three billion years ago. And therefore, they don't have the same what we call antioxidant protective system that other types of algae do. And as a consequence, when you use the right concentration, the hydrogen peroxide can specifically target the blue-green algae and knock them down and actually allow the healthy algae to flourish. Um, and uh, the other good thing on hydrogen peroxide is that it converts into water and oxygen in only a matter of hours. So there's not a lasting effect. And so what we've seen is that in just a couple of days, the blue-green algae went from being at a very high level with high levels of toxins to being 20-fold lower. Uh, and that's been sustained for the past week. Um, and we've seen actually the healthy algae increase by an order of magnitude, which is called regular green algae. So that's very promising. Um, you know, I've done research on hydrogen peroxide before. And so it's something that is gonna, uh, I don't, it won't be like that the whole summer, 
And so my hope is that it lasts as long as possible. Uh, and we might, and I think we're probably going to try a second dose uh, if, if it does begin to come back. Um, and I will also finally say that, that this combination of the sonic devices and hydrogen peroxide actually has never been tried before. So we're hopeful that it'll be uh, something that could last as long as possible through the summer. Yeah, thank you, Chris. This has been a great update and, and it's the most important topic, I think. There's a couple of topics out there that, that matter more than everything else. And I think this is certainly one of them. Affordable housing, this, uh, and, and climate change obviously feeds into this perfectly. So uh, we appreciate your expertise. And we have so many new people out here. It's good for them to know this stuff. Like a lot of people out here don't even know where their water comes from or where their, their wastewater ends up. That's a good point. They may bring a new energy towards uh, getting some of this stuff done as well. So maybe this may be a good moment. Let's hope so. Yeah. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.